Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 121, It Wasn't the Butler. Well, hello! We have had winter here in Arizona for almost five days. Raw! (laughs) We had snow. We had snow on the mountains. It was gorgeous. Oh, mountains, like Sierra kind of mountains, you know, big, craggy, Rockies-style mountains. Man, nothing looks better on them than snow. Green, sure, very pretty, love it. Wildflowers, nice. Snow, really? It has to be the snow. God, it was gorgeous. And Amy Singer is going to be here next week, and I'm afraid the snow's all going to be gone by the time she gets here, so she won't get to see the pretty mountains. But... Yes, Amy Singer of Nitty.com is visiting the Old Pueblo and staying here with me. And she's going to teach some classes and she's going to give some talks and she's going to hang out and eat Mexican food with me because seriously, it's so good here. Actually, one of the places I have to take her is to one of the, uh, actually not so many anymore, tortilla factories that we have here. So... That's the fun we're going to have next week. For those of you who are new podcast listeners, on the show notes at craftlit.blogspot.com, you will find in the upper right-hand corner a link to our library. The library has all of the back catalog. There were some issues earlier this week with episodes in the 45s and episodes in the 65s. Those problems should be rectified by now. However, as always, if you ever have any problems with getting one of the episodes or something is funky or the audio stops suddenly after 11 minutes, email me at mamaonits at gmail.com and I will fix it right away if I'm online and fix it as soon as I get online if I'm not online when you write to me. It wasn't the butler. It's all going to make sense to you later, I promise. It's kind of funny. I was actually going to do It Wasn't the Butler in the library with the candlestick, and then I thought, "Uh, I can't type all that. It Wasn't the Butler. When it comes to incentives, this past month, uh, this January that we've just left, we have a winner, and our winner is, drumroll, Tabitha Jones. Tabitha, yay! You have won the Mixed Media Self-Portraits Book of Inspiration and Techniques. I will be getting that puppy out to you pronto so that you can have a little bright spot in your February, which may be kind of white and snowy. Uh, For those of you who, (laughs) for those of yous, I'm going into my Chicago mode. My brother-in-law was just here, which is why this podcast took a while. We've had uh, house guests. The Mixed Media Self-Portraits Book by Kate Kolakos. I did it right. Kate Kolakos Prado. She 
outdid herself in this one. I've talked about it before. If you are even remotely interested in doing anything mixed media-y, maybe quilty, maybe a little painty, this book is so for you. So Tabitha, you're getting it. Everybody else, you might want to go look at it when you're at your local bookstore next time. Great, great, great. Our February incentive, again, is a gouageous skein of kind of lemon yellow and orange. It looks a little bit like an orange Julius. I don't know if that's going to resonate with anyone. <laughs> when I was a child at the beach, there was an orange Julius stand on the corner. I don't know if it's still there uh, in Balboa in Southern California, but if it is... Those of you who've been there or know what an orange Julius is, it's that color. Except it's kind of multi-tonal and it's layered and it's perfectly spun and oh, it's beautiful. For those of you who contacted me over the last couple of weeks, I don't I don't actually know Neil Gaiman. There are other famous people who I do know. Neil Gaiman is not one of them. I met him. I spoke to him at a book signing and I have a uh, quite a nice chunk of writing from him to me in my copy of Sandman's Season of Mists. However, <laughs> if you were to walk up to Neil Gaiman and say, I met your friend Heather, <laughs> he would, he would um, excuse himself politely and try and get away. Um, he doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. But boy, if he did, <laughs> that would be so cool. So many of you have read the Graveyard book. And all, all who have read the Graveyard book have said it is spectacular. I'm about halfway through right now, and it's lovely. I just love his writing. He's so... Well, there is an essay by George Orwell called Politics and the English Language. And in this essay, which really y'all should read, in this essay, Orwell documents uh, problems with the use of language in writing and how it has allowed us to muddy our meaning. And you can see it parallel, the muddying of our language. And one of the things that he talks about is our inability to create new metaphors or new comparisons that we fall back on cliches all too often. And I am as guilty as the next person of this, especially when I'm speaking quickly like I do on the podcast. It's hard to, you know, wax rhapsodic. Ah, 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 get it? quickly and innovatively off the cuff. There are people who can do it. That would be Robin Williams and maybe no one else. But I, can, I can't think of anyone else who I've ever seen improvise that brilliantly. Someone is going to email me with a name and I'm going to whack myself on the side of the head and go, yes, yes, that was right. But Politics in the English language does a nice job of explaining how this has happened, why this has happened, and why should we be why we should be vigilant in preventing it from happening with our own writing and our own language. Which is a long way of saying Neil Gaiman avoids all of that. He doesn't he's just so inventive in the way he describes things and the way he paints pictures in my head that are absolutely vivid, some of them way more vivid than I would like. American Gods, but oh, beautiful writing. Heartfelt. You can tell he's a dad. That's the other thing I like. Like in the book of Nancy Boys, that's just a book by a dad. I like that. It's nice to have a dad book that doesn't include, you know, 
pornography. <laughs> no, I don't actually mean that. My husband wouldn't do that either. Okay. I haven't even had anything to drink tonight. I'm just in a good mood. And I, I'm okay. Part of the reason that I'm in a good mood is because since my last kind of pathetic podcast, I have gotten the most wonderful postings and emails and oh my goodness, you people are so, so wonderful and lovely and heartfelt. And uh, I finally had to stop reading emails to my husband because I'd say, oh my gosh, you need to hear. And he'd just kind of look at me. (laughs) I thought, you know, he doesn't get positive feedback like this during his job in his daily work day. So I'm going to zip my lip and just revel in my own happiness. Along with the overwhelming uh, response that I got of <laughs> sympathy and I, threats of bodily harm to whoever writes negative feedback, um, <laughs> which was, you know, appreciated, but it could probably be traced back to me. So don't, <laughs> don't go out on a limb for me. Uh, I got a really good email back from Blue Phoenix, who I have corresponded with before on Ravelry. This is Tony. And I'm going to read you part of what she has to say, because I think her point is well taken. And I know that all of us kind of have that uh, immediate response of, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone would say something negative. That's so horrible. Why would they do that? Well, Tony has this response. To answer this question, does it really need to be that honest when it's free? My answer is yes. That's not to say I take negative criticism well. I try to be gracious about it, but I don't really. Not at all. I think I'd have a really hard time receiving criticism on something as personal as a podcast, which might feel like someone is ragging on you as a person instead of the podcast as an entity. I don't really agree with the notion that things that are offered for free shouldn't be subject to a critical, honest, fair review. If it's not fair, then it's just beyond mention but I don't think the crap reviews should disappear either. I don't believe in the idea of if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. And then she has a very funny aside that kind of contradicts all of that, but I'll go on. Anything put out for public sharing is subject to good and bad review, and I think it's the way it should be, even when it's not fair. That isn't to say that all reviews are useful either. There seems to be some notion amongst critics and rubberneckers, that they are providing a public service and doing everyone a favor by blessing us with their opinion, which is a load of, you can fill in the blanks. She went on to say, you spend a lot of time being self-critical, which is probably why the criticism in this case stung, especially if you have said the same thing to yourself. You need not only learn to let that go from the critic, you need to let that go from the inner critic as well. It's taken me 37 years to learn this. And and then she says, uh, good or bad, though, they can lead to focus, which is the best thing a creative person can have. They can make us review what's really important to us, and whatever the spirit behind them is, I think that's worth something. Thus endeth my unsolicited armchair psychology, (laughs) which I love. I, I thought that was very insightful, and really beautifully written because she like everybody else who wrote started off by saying oh my gosh I can't believe anybody said anything bad but that is not to say that the podcast is perfect and if we were engaged in casual casual conversation I would be the first to admit that her point about it bringing focus 
I thought was particularly interesting because, of course, after reading the negative criticism, what did I obsess about? All the things that I can do better, all the things that I want to do better, all the changes I'd like to make, all the time I'd like to have so that I can study up how to fix some of the things that I know are problems, but I haven't been able to figure out how to solve them quickly. You know, it's, it's, it, she's absolutely right. It's not a bad thing. And there was a wonderful, and I think I've mentioned this before, a wonderful documentary about Huckleberry Finn, the book, where an African-American scholar said, I don't know where anyone got into their head that education is supposed to be painless. And it struck me when I first saw that, which was 15 years ago, how surprised I was by that. Because, uh, of course, growing up in a household where there's lots of discussion and debate, learning was never painless. (laughs) It was fraught and fabulous, but, you know, you had to stand up for yourself, and that can be hard when you're 15 and insecure. So I thought that was a, a comment very wise very wise, very insightful. And it was good. It was good to get the balance during the week. I also got from Michelle, who's also on Ravelry. She's also loving the Graveyard book and said the audio reading of Stardust is also wonderful. So now we have the video of Neil Gaiman reading the Graveyard book at various uh, public readings. So you can actually listen to the whole book via video with Gaiman himself reading it. She also said that his version, his audio version of Stardust is also spectacular. I love Stardust. Second, she says, my parents are both from England. And yes, pea supers or those thick, dirty fogs were around up until the 1950s. So I was right. My mother worked at the Bank of England in London in the 50s and tells me about how you couldn't wear a light-colored coat in those fogs because you would end up with these little gray specks all over your coat from the damp, dirty air. Ew. It never even occurred to me how the filth in the air, you know, all the particulate matter in the air could, you know, change your clothing. I mean, I knew all the stories about wiping. It's why you see in Mary Poppins wiping the the countertop or wiping the top of the bureau to see if there's dust. I mean, this grit and this grime is coming up from the windows into the house, you, and so, you know, windowsills are dirty, which, by the way, was a problem in Brooklyn. Gee, I wonder why. I, I was horrified by the coat thing somehow. Somehow, a light-colored coat getting spotted with gray smudge just freaked me out way more. So that, I thought that was interesting. I also have been corresponding with Kristen, who responded to my whole call for journal things. We got a one, somebody wrote in just today, and I didn't print it out, and that's why I don't remember who it is, wrote in to mention that Frida Kahlo's, uh, all of her sketchbooks and journals are really wonderful, and that if you go online and look at and I think I have a link to this already placed, look at some of her journal work, you will see this extraordinary layering and texture. And you can see how she changed one image into another one. And then she's got text and then she's got ink splots. And then it was really cool. And it did make me feel a lot better about the scringy things that I'm doing. Kirsten, however, sent some pictures of journal work that she's done. And some of it is really the kind of amazing. It looks so time consuming, although she has a kid. So uh 
uh, fabulous artwork because it, it, it is artwork. It really is artwork. And then she has some pictures of some kind of sketchy stuff that she did. But her last picture, I just have to tell you because it's going to inspire you to go do extraordinary things yourself. The last picture is a sketch that she did on a page with lots of notes. And it's, do you remember in the movie Moulin Rouge, the, the elephant and how the pedestal thing, I know there's a, a name for it, the seat place on the top of the back of the elephant. And, you know, the elephant was real. It really was huge and ginormous. And at the Moulin Rouge back in the day, that room that's on top of the back of the elephant, that's what this reminds me of. It is a sketch of a cake that she wants to bake. She called it the Kama Sutra cake, and it's all, you know, oranges and reds and golds, and it's just a pencil sketch, but it's so jazzed me. It's beautiful. It's just amazing. Maybe, Kirsten, email me and let me know if you'll let me put the picture up on the show notes, because, wow. Uh, unfortunately, she said nobody's let her make the cake. She she is a baker. She makes cakes for, for work, but uh, no one has allowed her to make this cake yet, and all I'm doing is going through my mind going, well, when could I come up with a reason to have that cake? Ah, gorgeous. I love it when you guys send me pictures of the stuff you do. Cockles, warming the cockles of your heart. Sasha writes in, my Gallic friend who who knows all things Irish. She said that uh, a cockle is basically a saltwater clam, which I kind of vaguely remembered that it's a bivalve. It's you know, shellfish kind of thing. However, this was great. She said, Wikipedia gives the most reasonable explanation of the cockles of my heart as being, it refers to the ventricles of the heart, because in Latin, that's coccalae cordis. (laughs) So it sounds like it's another one of those instances of kind of a bastardization of a regular word, because somebody didn't know what the Latin meant, so they just went with the cockle thing. She also corrected my pronunciation of Edinburgh, which, did I get it right this time? (laughs) I knew better than to say Edinburgh, or Edinburgh, or, oh, never mind. Anyway, I probably did it wrong again. But I did know better. I was there. I have family from Glasgow. I have a clan (laughs) and a tartan. Anyway, we also have uh, Rachel sent in a new Austin, Jane Austen website that I am putting up on the show notes for all of you to enjoy, which I am very excited about. Lots of cool things, lots of cool things on the show notes. I am totally going to forget to mention all of them. But one of the things to mention is getting things done hacks. I found over the last mm, two weeks completely on accident a thing called moleskine hacks or moleskine. Everybody says it's pronounced differently. I still have no idea, but it's those little black notebooks, the Hemingway notebooks. And people have what they're calling hacks for these little notebooks so that you can personalize them, make them more useful for you, make them function not only as a journal, but as a calendar or this or that or the other thing. Lots of really cool hacks, which led me to getting things done hacks. For those of you who are familiar with the getting things done monopoly on the public imagination from about 2004 until now, uh, there are all sorts of cute little interesting things you can do to the Moleskine books to make them function as a getting things done book. So for those of you who are 
only comfortable with the electronic world in as much as you listen to a podcast, but don't want to have a PDA or an electric calendar or a phone that does your laundry for you, go look at the Getting Things Done hack. I posted one link, which was, I thought, the most creative of all of them. Uh, It takes one single sheet of paper, and you watch a video on how to fold that single sheet of paper, and you wind up with a calendar doohickey thing that can fit in your back pocket that you can even include like the 12 virtues that Benjamin Franklin tells you to be virtuous about. <laughs> There's some really interesting things. So I have a link to that. Uh, Coraline comes out tomorrow. Woo-hoo! I think my DH and I are going to actually have a date night on the 13th rather than the 14th. So happy Valentine's Day in advance. Friday night, I will be at a very good French restaurant and then at Coraline. I'll be thinking of you all, of course. <laughs> what else do I do? Congratulations to Tickabel, who has a new podcast, which I have linked to in the show notes. And Tickabel, I know you're listening. Send me a promo and I will play it for you. I also found in that Frida Kahlo moment of inspiration, I also found a link to a webpage that is a collection of artists sketchbooks, some of them famous artists like Frida Kahlo, and some of them just just folks. Uh, a lot, a huge section on Moleskine mm, journals and all the art that goes on in them, and beautiful stuff. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. So I'm just trying to, you know, push beauty out onto you right now. But it is time, it is time for the next chapter of Jekyll and Hyde. Today, we are just going to do chapter eight. Next week, or the next podcast, will be chapter nine, and then chapter ten, and then it's over. And then, I have to start Scarlet Litter, uh, which is a good thing. I'm very excited about that. That means, if you have audio that you are going to record, please either send it to me by, let's say, ballparking it here, March 1st. No. Get it to me by March 10th that gives you a little more time. Get it to me by March 10th. If there's going to be a problem with you recording what you said you were going to record, please post it on Ravelry or send me an email. Some people who are not on Ravelry have emailed me and said, you know, if you need backup reading, I'd be happy to do it. So all is well with the world. Just uh, get your recordings to me. I'm very excited. I'm very excited. You guys are really good readers. So last week we did chapters four through seven. We really cooked through the book. We had a murder. We've had all sorts of freaky things happening. We have Utterson who is trying very hard to ignore the fact that something very weird is going on. That poor, poor Utterson, that poor Utterson thing continues today. He still has no clue, uh, but you can tell that the first and foremost for him is keeping up appearances. You don't want the servants to misbehave. You don't want to misbehave yourself. And you you certainly don't want to show your hand. You don't want to jump to conclusions. You don't want to get all hysterical. But really, this poor man is getting it knocked into his skull that something is not right. And that's going to continue this week and, and through into next week as well. This chapter starts a little bit slow, but I, I actually really like this. The, the beginning of this chapter, I think, 
Stevenson, someone wrote me, I think it was on Ravelry, saying that, you know, most of us, if we read Stevenson at all, it was Treasure Island. And it's a kid's book, and it's an adventure story, and it's good, yeah, sure, but mm, great literature. Well, yeah, I mean, it is great literature in one sense. However, on occasion, even though this is written more or less from Utterson's point of view, certainly kind of psychologically the construct is Utterson's point of view even though Utterson is not someone who is necessarily prone to superior prose himself every once in a while Stevenson just has to let it rip and the beginning of this chapter I think his descriptions of walking uh, through London are just lovely um, he, he, you, um, poor Utterson. You can see him kind of grasping at straws all through here, or maybe it's, maybe it's just that he's afraid. Maybe he knows and can't deal with what he's starting to realize, which is, you know, this is the part that makes it gothic. This is the part that that keeps it in there with, with Dracula and Frankenstein and Turn of the Screw and Jane Eyre even. The, the setting of London, which is very familiar to, well, to anyone who's read a lot of Brit lit, you feel like it's familiar to you, even if you've never been there. For those of us who've been lucky enough to either live there, near there, or visit there extensively, London, like New York, is a city that, or Rome, or Paris, that really, or Prague, grows on you, San Francisco, uh, and Chicago. It's it's a nowhere else like it kind of thing. So in the midst of this nowhere else like it kind of thing, when you overlay onto something that's so beautiful and so positive, at least in literature, to overlay this kind of gloomy, dark, and I don't mean that by color, I mean tonally dark, vaguely creepy, overlay on top of London it it gives you that gothic edge it it does a really nice job just like with Frankenstein I mean my gosh you're in these gorgeous settings with you know mountains and lakes and flowers and forests and glades and all this stuff and you know fabulous architecture and it's still creepy turn of the screw fabulous country estate really creepy Jane Eyre crumbling country estate really creepy not that you know it's all bad the story I mean but that uh, something isn't right there there's the mad woman in the attic and all that stuff so maybe it's fear probably it's fear and maybe it's just cluelessness. I, I actually don't buy the cluelessness thing anymore in Utterson's case I think really he's just scared. Um, but but you definitely have these gothic overtones now that if they weren't clear before are definitely clear now. Then there's uh, another thing that we've talked about before, mostly joking, uh, doppelgangers. This idea of an evil twin or an evil other or another side of you. And obviously that pops up in gothic literature. You've got uh, Frankenstein and you've got his monster. Um, with uh, Turn of the Screw, you've got the the ghosts. There's the the ghost and the woman. There's also the the male ghost and the boy. You know, there's all sorts of kind of strange 
creepy things happening in Turn of the Screw with that. And here we have Hyde and we have Jekyll. And clearly we're we're dealing with a doppelganger thing thing. Some of you I heard recently took my advice and listened to the story all the way through on LibriVox so you'd hear the ending so you could come back and get um, kind of descriptions of, of what more to listen for. So I'm going to assume at this point that if you don't know the if you don't know the secret, skip ahead about three minutes. I'll wait for you to go. Okay, for everybody else who does know the secret, Jekyll and Hyde being the same person, I hope I haven't given that away before too, too terribly much. Um, if you think about it, one of the things I particularly like about this specific doppelganger moment is Jekyll, the good one, uh, tall, handsome, stately, wonderful, Hyde, small, creepy. You can't exactly tell what's wrong with him, but he gives off this air of deformity. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he's small. I like to think this is because it implies that if Jekyll hadn't messed around with all this stuff, his dark side would have stayed small compared to his good side. And that probably for all of us, we all have a dark side. We all have the side that does think terrible things from time to time, but we have, you know, the, the super ego telling us, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't act on that. And that's all fine. But if you unleash the dark side, I would have thought, and I think this is from a particularly modern perspective, I would have thought that the dark side would have been bigger because it had been stuffed down and cramped and prevented from acting for so long. I mean, Jekyll's no kid. That uh, I was fascinated that this was Stevenson's take on it. And you're going to hear more about uh, the descriptions of size and everything in today's chapter. There is a lot of dialogue, which sometimes prevents the mood from coming through, but I really, I really like the descriptions in this chapter. There are so many of them, and I actually started writing down all these lines and pieces of text to kind of point out to you and reiterate, and then I kind of smacked myself on the back of the head and said, you know what? It's really well written. They're going to get it just fine because it's really well written this chapter in particular. The, the one piece that I will uh, point out so that you pay close attention to is the description of the cabinet door after it comes down. I ain't saying anything more than that. Beautiful, beautiful. And in this chapter, if you haven't already bought into this guy who's reading this, I think after this chapter you will be sold. His his voice his voice is just so utterly utterson. I love his voice. I have no idea who he is. And you know, he's not Chip. He's just not. But he's good. And he's this is a good story for him to have read. So I am going to stop yammering and I am going to hand it over to he, our reader, for you. And uh, I think that's it. I will sign off afterwards. Have a great week or however long it takes me to get to 
episode 122. Here comes chapter 8 of Jekyll and Hyde. The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapters 8 and 9 Chapter 8 The Last Night Mr. Otterson was sitting by his fireside one evening, after dinner, when he was surprised to receive a visit from Paul. "'Bless me, Paul, what brings you here?' he cried. And then, taking a second look at him, "'What ails you?' he added. "'Is the doctor ill?' "'Mr. Otterson,' said the man, "'there is something wrong.' "'Take a seat, and here is a glass of wine for you,' said the lawyer. "'Now take your time, and tell me plainly what you want.' "'You know the doctor's ways, sir,' replied Paul, "'and how he shuts himself up. "'Well, he's shut up again in the cabinet, "'and I don't like it, sir.' I wish I may die if I like it. Mr. Utterson, sir, I'm afraid. Now, my good man, said the lawyer, be explicit. What are you afraid of? I've been afraid for about a week, returned Paul, doggedly disregarding the question, and I can bear it no more. The man's appearance amply bore out his words. His manner was altered for the worse, and except for the moment when he'd first announced his terror, he had not once looked the lawyer in the face. Even now he sat with the glass of wine untasted on his knee, and his eyes directed to a corner of the floor. "'I can bear it no more,' he repeated. "'Come,' said the lawyer, "'I see you have some good reason, Paul. I see there is something seriously amiss.' Try to tell me what it is. I think there's been foul play, said Paul hoarsely. Foul play, cried the lawyer, a good deal frightened and rather inclined to be irritated in consequence. What foul play? What does the man mean? I daren't say, sir, was the answer. But will you come along with me and see for yourself? Mr. Utterson's only answer was to rise and get his hat and greatcoat, but he observed with wonder the greatness of the relief that appeared upon the butler's face, and perhaps with no less that the wine was still untasted when he set it down to follow. It was a wild, cold, seasonable night of March, with a pale moon lying on her back as though the wind had tilted her, and a flying rack of the most diaphanous and lawny texture. The wind made talking difficult, and flecked the blood into the face. It seemed to have swept the streets unusually bare of passengers besides, for Mr. Utterson thought he had never seen that part of London so deserted. He could have wished it otherwise, Never in his life had he been conscious of so sharp a wish to see and touch his fellow-creatures. For struggle as he might, there was borne in upon his mind a crushing anticipation of calamity. The square, when they got there, was all full of wind and dust, and the thin trees in the garden were lashing themselves against the railing. Paul, who had kept all the way a pace or two ahead, now pulled up in the middle of the pavement, and in spite of the biting weather, 
took off his hat and mopped his brow with the red pocket handkerchief. But for all the hurry of his coming, these were not the dews of exertion that he wiped away, but the moisture of some strangling anguish. For his face was white, and his voice, when he spoke, harsh and broken. Well, sir, he said, here we are, and God grant there be nothing wrong. Amen, Paul, said the lawyer. Thereupon the servant knocked in a very guarded manner. The door was opened on the chain, and a voice asked from within, Is that you, Paul? It's all right, said Paul. Open the door. The hall, when they entered it, was brightly lighted up. The fire was built high, and about the hearth the hall of the servants, men and women, stood huddled together like a flock of sheep. At the sight of Mr. Utterson, the housemaid broke into hysterical whimpering, and the cook, crying out, Bless God, it's Mr. Utterson, ran forward as if to take him in her arms. What, what, are you all here? said the lawyer peevishly. Very irregular, very unseemly. Your master would be far from pleased. They're all afraid, said Paul. Blank silence followed, no one protesting. Only the maid lifted up her voice and now wept loudly. Hold your tongue, Paul said to her, with a ferocity of accent that testified to his own jangled nerves. And indeed, when the girl had so suddenly raised the note of her lamentation, they had all started and turned towards the inner door with faces of dreadful expectation. And now, continued the butler, addressing the knife-boy, reach me a candle, and we'll get this through hands at once. And then he begged Mr. Utterson to follow him, and led the way to the back garden. Now, sir, said he, you come as gently as you can. I want you to hear, and I don't want you to be heard. And see here, sir, if by any chance he was to ask you in, don't go. Mr. Utterson's nerves, at this unlooked-for termination, gave a jerk that nearly threw him from his balance, but he recollected his courage and followed the butler into the laboratory building and through the surgical theatre, with its lumber of crates and bottles, to the foot of the stair. Here Paul motioned him to stand on one side and listen, while he himself, setting down the candle and making a great and obvious call on his resolution, mounted the steps and knocked with a somewhat uncertain hand on the red baize of the cabinet door. "'Mr. Utterson, sir, asking to see you,' he called, and even as he did so, once more violently signed to the lawyer to give ear. A voice answered from within, "'Tell him I cannot see anyone,' it answered complainingly. "'Thank you, sir,' said Paul, with a note of something like triumph in his voice, and taking up his candle, he led Mr. Utterson back across the yard and into the great kitchen, where the fire was out and the beetles were leaping on the floor. "'Sir,' he said, looking Mr. Utterson in the eyes, "'was that my master's voice?' 
It seems much changed, replied the lawyer, very pale, but giving look for look. Changed? Well, yes, I think so, said the butler. Have I been twenty years in this man's house to be deceived about his voice? No, sir, master's made away with. He was made away with eight days ago, when we heard him cry out upon the name of God. And who's in there instead of him, and why it stays there, is a thing that cries to heaven, Mr. Utterson. This is a very strange tale, Paul. This is rather a wild tale, my man, said Mr. Utterson, biting his finger. Suppose it were as you suppose, supposing Dr. Jekyll to have been, well, murdered, what could induce the murderer to stay? That won't hold water. It doesn't commend itself to reason. Well, Mr. Utterson, you are a hard man to satisfy, but I'll do it yet, said Paul. All this last week, you must know, him or it, or whatever it is that lives in that cabinet, has been crying night and day for some sort of medicine, and cannot get it to his mind. It was sometimes his way, the master's, that is, to write his orders on a sheet of paper and throw it on the stair. We've had nothing else this week back, nothing but papers and a closed door, and the very meals left there to be smuggled in when no one was looking. Well, sir, every day, I and twice and thrice in the same day, there have been orders and complaints, and I've been sent flying to all the wholesale chemists in town. Every time I brought the stuff back, there would be another paper telling me to return it, because it was not pure, and another order to a different firm. This drug is wanted bitter bad, sir, whatever for. Have you any of these papers? asked Mr. Utterson. Paul felt in his pocket and handed out a crumpled note, which the lawyer, bending nearer to the candle, carefully examined. Its contents ran thus. Dr. Jekyll presents his compliments to Messrs. Moore. He assures them that their last sample is impure and quite useless for his present purpose. In the year 18-something, Dr. J. purchased a somewhat large quantity from Messrs. M. He now begs them to search with the most sedulous care, and should any of the same quality be left, to forward it to him at once. Expense is no consideration. The importance of this to Dr. J. can hardly be exaggerated. So far the letter had run composedly enough, but here with a sudden splutter of the pen, the writer's emotion had broken loose. For God's sake, he had added, find me some of the old. This is a strange note, said Mr. Utterson, and then sharply, how do you come to have it open? The man at Moore's was main angry, sir, and he threw it back to me like so much dirt, returned Paul. This is unquestionably the doctor's hand, do you know? resumed the lawyer. I thought it looked like it, said the servant rather sulkily, and then, with another voice, but what matters hand of right, he said, I've seen him. Seen him? repeated Mr. Utterson. Well? That's it, said Paul. It was this way. 
I came suddenly into the theatre from the garden. It seems he'd slipped out to look for this drug or whatever it is, for the cabinet door was open, and there he was at the far end of the room, digging among the crates. He looked up when I came in, gave a kind of cry, and whipped upstairs into the cabinet. It was but for one minute that I saw him, but the hair stood upon my head like quills. Sir, if that was my master, why had he a mask upon his face? If it was my master, why did he cry out like a rat and run from me? I have served him long enough, and then— The man paused and passed his hand over his face. These are all very strange circumstances, said Mr. Utterson, but I think I begin to see daylight. Your master, Paul, is plainly seized with one of those maladies that both torture and transform the sufferer. Hence, for aught I know, the alteration of his voice, hence the mask and his avoidance of his friends, hence his eagerness to find this drug by means of which the poor soul retains some hope of ultimate recovery. God grant that he be not deceived. There is my explanation. It is sad enough, Paul, I and appalling to consider, but it is plain and natural, hangs together well, and delivers us from all exorbitant alarms. Sir, said the butler, turning to a sort of mottled pallor, that thing was not my master, and there's the truth. My master, here he looked around him and began to whisper, is a tall, fine build of a man, and this was more of a dwarf. Utterson attempted to protest. Oh, sir, cried Paul, do you think I do not know my master after twenty years? Do you think I do not know where his head comes to in the cabinet door, where I saw him every morning of my life? No, sir, that thing in the mask was never Dr. Jekyll. God knows what it was, but it was never Dr. Jekyll. And it is the belief of my heart that there was murder done. Paul, replied the lawyer, if you say that, it will become my duty to make certain. Much as I desire to spare your master's feelings, much as I am puzzled by this note, which seems to prove him to be still alive, I shall consider it my duty to break in that door. Ah, Mr. Utterson, that's talking, cried the butler. And now comes the second question, resumed Utterson. Who is going to do it? Why, you and me, sir, was the undaunted reply. That is very well said, returned the lawyer, and whatever comes of it, I shall make it my business to see you are no loser. There is an axe in the theatre, continued Paul, and you might take the kitchen poker for yourself. The lawyer took that rude but weighty instrument into his hand and balanced it, do you know, Paul, he said, looking up, that you and I are about to place ourselves in a position of some peril? You may say so, sir, indeed, returned the butler. It is well, then, that we should be frank, said the other. We both think more than we have said. Let us make a clean breast. This masked figure that you saw, did you recognize it? Well, sir, it went so quick— 
and the creature was so doubled up that I could hardly swear to that, was the answer. But if you mean, was it Mr. Hyde? Why, yes, I think it was. You see, it was much of the same bigness, and it had the same quick, light way with it. And then who else could have got in by the laboratory door? You've not forgot, sir, that at the time of the murder he still had the key with him. But that's not all. I don't know, Mr. Utterson, if you ever met this Mr. Hyde. Yes, said the lawyer, I once spoke with him. Then you must know as well as the rest of us that there was something queer about that gentleman, something that gave a man a turn. I don't know rightly how to say it, sir, beyond this, that you felt it in your marrow, kind of cold and thin. I own I felt something of what you describe, said Mr. Utterson. Quite so, sir, returned Paul. Well, when that masked thing like a monkey jumped from among the chemicals and whipped into the cabinet, it went down my spine like ice. Oh, I know it's not evidence, Mr. Utterson. I'm book-learned enough for that. But a man has his feelings, and I give you my Bible word, it was Mr. Hyde. Aye, aye, said the lawyer, my fears incline to the same point. Evil, I fear, founded, evil was sure to come, of that conviction. I truly, I believe you, I believe poor Harry is killed, and I believe his murderer, for what purpose God alone can tell, is still lurking in his victim's room. Well, let our name be vengeance. Call Bradshaw. The footman came at the summons, very white and nervous. Pull yourself together, Bradshaw, said the lawyer. This suspense, I know, is telling upon all of you. But it is now our intention to make an end of it. Paul here and I are going to force our way into the cabinet. If all is well, my shoulders are broad enough to bear the blame. Meanwhile, lest anything should really be amiss, or any malefactor seek to escape by the back, you and the boy must go round the corner with a pair of good sticks and take your post at the laboratory door. We give you ten minutes to get to your stations. As Bradshaw left, the lawyer looked at his watch. And now, Paul, let us get to ours, he said. And taking the poker under his arm, he led the way into the yard. The scud had banked over the moon, and it was now quite dark. The wind which only broke in puffs and draughts into that deep well of building, tossed the light of the candle to and fro about their steps, until they came into the shelter of the theatre, where they sat down silently to wait. London hummed solemnly all around, but nearer at hand the stillness was only broken by the sound of a footfall moving to and fro along the cabinet floor. "'So it will walk all day, sir,' whispered Paul. "'Aye, and the better part of the night. "'Only when a new sample comes from the chemist there's a bit of a break. "'Ah, it's an ill conscience that's such an enemy to rest. "'Ah, sir, there's blood foully shed in every step of it. "'But hark again, a little closer. "'Put your heart into your ears, Mr. Utterson, and tell me, "'is that the doctor's foot?' The steps fell lightly and oddly, with a certain swing, for all they went so slowly, 
It was different indeed from the heavy, creaking tread of Henry Jekyll. Utterson sighed. Is there never anything else? he asked. Poole nodded. Once, he said, once I heard it weeping. Weeping? How's that? said the lawyer, conscious of a sudden chill of horror. Weeping like a woman or a lost soul, said the butler. I came away with that upon my heart, that I could have wept too. But now the ten minutes drew to an end. Paul disinterred the axe from under a sack of packing straw. The candle was set upon the nearest table to light them to the attack, and they drew near with bated breath to where that patient foot was still going up and down, up and down, in the quiet of the night. Jekyll! cried Utterson with a loud voice. I demand to see you. He paused a moment, but there came no reply. I give you fair warning. Our suspicions are aroused, and I must and shall see you, he resumed. If not by fair means, then by foul. If not of your consent, then by brute force. Utterson, said the voice, for God's sake, have mercy. "'Ah, that's not Jekyll's voice. It's Hyde!' cried Utterson. "'Down with the door, Paul!' Paul swung the axe over his shoulder. The blow shook the building, and the red baize door leaped against the lock and hinges. A dismal screech, as of mere animal terror, rang from the cabinet. Up went the axe again, and again the panels crashed and the flame bounded. Four times the blow fell but the wood was tough, and the fittings were of excellent workmanship, and it was not until the fifth that the lock burst in sunder, and the wreck of the door fell inwards on the carpet. The besiegers, appalled by their own riot, and the stillness that had succeeded, stood back a little and peered in. There lay the cabinet before their eyes in the quiet lamplight, a good fire glowing and chattering on the hearth, the kettle singing its thin strain, a drawer or two open, papers neatly set forth on the business table, and nearer the fire the things laid out for tea. The quietest room, you would have said, and, but for the glazed presses full of chemicals, the most commonplace that night in London. Right in the midst there lay the body of a man, sorely contorted and still twitching, they drew near on tiptoe, turned it on its back, and beheld the face of Edward Hyde. He was dressed in clothes far too large for him, clothes of the doctor's bigness. The cords of his face still moved with the semblance of life, but life was quite gone, and by the crushed file in the hand, and the strong smell of kernels that hung upon the air, Utterson knew that he was looking on the body of a self-destroyer. "'We have come too late,' he said sternly, "'whether to save or punish. "'Hyde is gone to his account, "'and it only remains for us to find the body of your master.' "'The far greater proportion of the building "'was occupied by the theatre, "'which filled almost the whole ground story "'and was lighted from above, "'and by the cabinet,' which formed an upper story at one end, and looked upon the court. A corridor joined the theatre to the door on the by-street, 
and with this the cabinet communicated separately by a second flight of stairs. There were besides a few dark closets and a spacious cellar. All these they now thoroughly examined. Each closet needed but a glance, for all were empty, and all, by the dust that fell from their doors, had stood long unopened. The cellar, indeed, was filled with crazy lumber, mostly dating from the times of the surgeon who was Jekyll's predecessor, but even as they opened the door they were advertised of the uselessness of further search by the fall of a perfect mat of cobweb, which had for years sealed up the entrance. Nowhere was there any trace of Henry Jekyll, dead or alive. Paul stamped on the flags of the corridor. He must be buried here, he said, hearkening to the sound. Or he may have fled, said Utterson, and he turned to examine the door in the by-street. It was locked, and lying nearby on the flags they found the key, already stained with rust. This does not look use, observed the lawyer. Use, echoed Paul, do you not see, sir? It is broken, much as if a man had stamped on it. Aye, continued Utterson, and the fractures, too, are rusty. The two men looked at each other with a scare. This is beyond me, Paul, said the lawyer. Let us go back to the cabinet. They mounted the stair in silence, and still with an occasional awestruck glance at the dead body, proceeded more thoroughly to examine the contents of the cabinet. At one table there were traces of chemical work, various measured heaps of some white salt being laid on glass saucers, as though for an experiment in which the unhappy man had been prevented. "'That is the same drug that I was always bringing him,' said Paul, and even as he spoke, the kettle, with a startling noise, boiled over. This brought them to the fireside, where the easy chair was drawn cosily up, and the tea-things stood ready to the sitter's elbow, the very sugar in the cup. There were several books on a shelf. One lay beside the tea-things open, and Utterson was amazed to find it a copy of a pious work, for which Jekyll had several times expressed a great esteem, annotated in his own hand with startling blasphemies. Next, in the course of their review of the chamber, the searchers came to the cheval-glass, into whose depth they looked with an involuntary horror. But it was so turned as to show them nothing but the rosy glow playing on the roof, the fire sparkling in a hundred repetitions along the glazed front of the presses, and their own pale and fearful countenances stooping to look in. "'This glass have seen some strange things, sir,' whispered Paul, "'and surely none stranger than itself,' echoed the lawyer in the same tones. "'For what did Jekyll—he caught himself up at the word with a start— and then conquering the weakness, what could Jekyll want with it, he said. You may say that, said Paul. Next they turned to the business table. On the desk among the neat array of papers, a large envelope was uppermost, and bore, in the doctor's hand, the name of Mr. Utterson, 
The lawyer unsealed it, and several enclosures fell to the floor. The first was a will, drawn in the same eccentric terms as the one which he had returned six months before, to serve as a testament in case of death, and as a deed of gift in case of disappearance. But in place of the name of Edward Hyde, the lawyer, with indescribable amazement, read the name of Gabriel John Utterson. He looked at Paul, and then back at the paper, and last of all at the dead malefactor stretched upon the carpet. "'My head goes round,' he said. "'He has been all these days in possession. He had no cause to like me. He must have raged to see himself displaced, and he has not destroyed this document.' He caught up the next paper. It was a brief note in the doctor's hand and dated at the top. "'Oh, Paul!' the lawyer cried. "'He was alive and here this day. "'He cannot have been disposed of in so short a space. "'He must be still alive. "'He must have fled. "'And then, why fled? "'And how? "'And in that case, can we venture to declare this suicide? "'Oh, we must be careful.' I foresee that we may yet involve your master in some dire catastrophe. Why don't you read it, sir? said Paul. Because I fear, replied the lawyer solemnly, God grant that I have no cause for it. And with that he brought the paper to his eyes and read as follows. My dear Utterson, when this shall fall into your hands, I shall have disappeared. Under what circumstances I have not the penetration to foresee, but my instinct and all the circumstances of my nameless situation tell me that the end is sure and must be early. Go then, and first read the narrative which Lanyon warned me he was to place in your hands, and if you care to hear more, turn to the confession of your unworthy and unhappy friend, Henry Jekyll. There was a third enclosure, asked Utterson. Here, sir, said Paul, and gave into his hands a considerable packet, sealed in several places. The lawyer put it into his pocket. I would say nothing of this paper. If your master has fled or is dead, we may at least save his credit. It is now ten. I must go home and read these documents in quiet but I shall be back before midnight, when we shall send for the police. They went out, locking the door of the theatre behind them, and Utterson, once more leaving the servants gathered about the fire in the hall, trudged back to his office to read the two narratives in which this mystery was now to be explained. So yeah, he said it was going to be chapters 8 and 9, but it's not. His recording goes on to chapter 9, but clearly we're out of time. I wanted to make a last minute, because it just arrived, a thank you to Nancy from Grand Junction, Colorado, who sent Sorcery and Cecilia or the Enchanted Chocolate Pot, because we've talked about that before, and the cover is awesome. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And have a great week. I Maybe I can even get Amy Singer to podcast with me next week. 
I'll have to rig up a microphone. We'll see what we can do. We'll have some fun. And I will talk to you soon. Have a great time. I think I will. Right now, I'm going to go knit socks for my little one. The Christmas socks that I, I am now finishing. You take care. Have a great one. find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T. Or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.